Well, good to see you this morning. Uh, We're going to be in Galatians 4. Uh, If you're new here with us this morning, we are in a series this year entitled Letters to the Church. And so we're spending the year uh, reading these beautiful letters written uh, by the Apostle Paul to the first century church, most of which of the New Testament is comprised of these letters. And uh, and we've made it to Galatians, and now we're in chapter 4, where we are going to uh, hear from the Apostle Paul as he challenges the Christians in the Galatian churches to not turn back to the life, to the slavery, to the things that they once held so closely to. And so as we think about the Christian journey, what the Christian journey is, um, David just prayed, um, Lord, help us to turn from our sins. That's that's half of what it means to be a Christian, to turn from sins, but to latch on to the one of whom there is none better, the Lord himself. And so the Christian journey is a letting go of certain things to tether our lives, if you will, to the one true living God. And, uh, and so uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at this topic of not turning back. Uh, one, we're, because we're prone to do it. Uh, we're prone to turn back to the former things. We're prone to turn back to things that don't uh, deliver on the promises that they make. Um, despite this beautiful relationship that we have with the Lord, that our souls have been tethered to the one true living God, we're tempted along the way, day by day, to tether our lives to smaller things. And so this is true of the churches in Galatia. Uh, it's true of our lives as well on a daily basis. And so I'm praying that the Lord will have our hearts open uh, to hear from him this morning that for many of us, today will be a day of recalibrating, if you will, the things that matter in life, the things that we hold dear to, the things that we've tethered our lives to, to find our purpose and identity. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to start in just a moment in Galatians 4 and verse 1. But before we get there, um, there's, a, uh, there's an analogy that I've heard um, pastors or theologians use to describe um, what, what it looks like then as Christians to, to let go of the, the deeper things of God and to then wander around in the shallower things. Um, the analogy of the swimming pool is used, that um, oftentimes we spend all of our times in the shallow end of the pool, understanding the pool to be God's presence and all that we have in him. And there's a deep end to be had, but, but many of us, out of fear or out of um, whatever it is, we, we fail to move from the shallow end to the deep end. And for me, that analogy really isn't quite strong enough to illustrate the way my heart works. Um, a few years ago, we have two boys. Our youngest is now three. Uh, when Calvin was actually two months old, we took him on his first trip to the beach. And uh, a couple of uh, memories from that trip that I'll never forget, the first of which I remember how small he was because instead of taking a pack and play or a crib, we just used a dresser drawer uh, to put him in. And, and I'll remember that uh, for forever because our oldest, Hudson, who was about four at the time, uh, came by the dresser drawer with his little brother laying there sleeping and just slammed the thing shut. Boom. <laughs> My wife and I, our hearts, right, leapt out of our chest as we slowly opened the drawer back open. Little Calvin's eyes were this big as he just, what just happened? Uh, but, but a second memory from that trip is when we actually made our way down to the beach, his first experience on the beach. We knew as an infant we had to take special care of him. We couldn't just toss him out in the ocean. So we brought along a kiddie pool and a shade canopy, and we got water from the ocean and put in the kiddie pool with some sand, and we let him just kind of wallow around, if you will, in the little shallow water. He couldn't even hold himself upright. And that was his first 
beach experience. And so for me, that's the analogy that describes my heart when I tend to uh, neglect the deeper things of God, the deeper level of joy that is to be had, the deeper level of purpose and meaning. It's like I'm just wallowing around in a shallow kiddie pool, right? The water may be from the ocean, but it's not the ocean. When there is a deeper uh, body of water to be had, an, an ocean that you can't swim to the other side of nor dive to the depths of, that is the understanding of who God is to us. He is infinite. Infinite in love and grace and mercy. Infinite in wisdom and justice. And I think so many times we as Christ followers, we settle for the kiddie pool version of God. What is manageable, it still tastes like salt water, still tastes like God, it still comes from God, right? And it looks as equally absurd, right, to say that we're truly swimming in the ocean. I believe it breaks the heart of the Father as he sees us there on the beach and says, come, trust me, come into the deeps of who I am. Come experience the depths of how much I love you. And I think we're prone. We're prone to return to the kiddie pool version, the shallows, if you will. And so I think this is what Paul is getting at here for the Galatian church. As we get ready to, to dive into the, uh, the conversation at hand, um, from the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, God says something profound that's going to help set us up to hear what Paul's going to say today. I know many of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments, the first of which began with our worship and where God, uh, where we esteem God in the place of our our affections, um, the the one who we give um, all all honor to. Um, Ultimately, God is the object of our worship. And so um, from Exodus 20, if you want to turn there with me, you can. God speaks through Moses to the people, and he reminds them, first of all, this is in verse 1, and God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God says, I'm, I am the Lord, your God. This is who you are. You're the people of whom I, I just rescued and brought out of slavery. Therefore, he rolls out his own character in the Ten Commandments. The first thing that he says is this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And so what God is saying here in the beginning of the Ten Commandments is this, do not settle, my dear children, for anything less than me. Don't swim in any more shallow waters. Don't swim in the kiddie pool and call it me. Do not settle for images carved by your hands, things that you can measure, things that you can scoop up and hold in your hands. And so what Paul is going to do now in Galatians 4 is he's going to remind us, again, who we are in this great rescue, just like God did here in Exodus 20, and he's going to challenge us to not turn back to the shallow things in life. Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 1, he says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. Now, he's going to go on to talk about our identity and ultimately reminding the Galatian Christians to live as children of the Most High God who have been set free from slavery. 
Now, this is the second time that Paul has brought this up in this particular letter. The first time he brought it up, he talked about our slavery to the law. How though, even though the law of God is, is really good in its essence, it reflects God's character. It calls us to a, to, a, to a life of holiness. It calls us to a life of joy. Ultimately to us, though, the law became a curse because it was this continual reminder that we don't add up, that we can't earn our way into God's favor. And so Paul talks about how the law became, a, became slavery to us. And so now he's going to point to a second thing here that we were once slaves to before we knew Christ. And he calls these things the elementary principles of the world. Now this is an interesting word that Paul uses here in the Greek. And and we have some trouble. Depending on what translation you're reading from, you'll read elementary principles, the elementary uh, truths, um, the the elements of the world. This word gets translated several different ways. One of which is to the basic elements of, of of the earth. Wind, fire, rain, dirt. Uh, another way this word gets used is to explain the elementary elements of a thing. So, for example, if you're talking about a language, the most elementary element of that language is the alphabet, the characters that make up the sounds that make up the language. Those are the elementary elements. Or if you think in musical terms, the notes that make up the key of the music, each individual note is the elementary note. It even gets used after uh, first century, we find the, this word gets used in writings to explain the elementary spiritual beings of our world and very likely could have been in use at this time. And here's the point. Regardless of what translation you have, Paul's getting at one singular point here, and it's this. We have been set free from small things. Whether he's talking about the elementary elements of the earth, the elementary elements of, of, of our teachings, the elementary spirits of the universe, we have been set free as children of God from small things and elementary things. Which reminds me that those are the very things that we're prone to latch on to. The small things of the world. The kiddie pool, if you will, version of who God is. The kiddie pool version of the life that God's called you and I to live. We continue reading in verse 4. Paul reminds us. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent, his, sent forth his son. So God sent his son to... To to solve this problem for us, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Remember, the law was was our master. We were slaves to the law. God set his son to set us free from that slavery under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, not because you want to be sons or there's a good chance that if you do a good job in life, God will call you his son or daughter, but because you already are in Christ. Listen, if, you're, if you believe that Jesus is the son of the living God and that he died and rose again for your sins, if you believe that, you're not only forgiven and saved, your identity is established. You are a son or daughter of the most high God. That's who you are. You used to be a slave to small things, but you've been set free from that. God looks at his children. He doesn't like to see his children as slaves to anything. He goes on to say, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
God has set us free to be who God created us to be, to live unashamedly this life that is drenched in purpose and worship and mission as one of his children. And the problem of the Christians in this area and the Christians today is that we so quickly turn back to smaller things and latch on to smaller things to find value, to find purpose, to find meaning, to find rescue, to find relief, to find momentary joy. If you're taking notes, God sent his son to set me free from slavery to small things. God set, sent his son, Jesus, to set me free from slavery to small things. The kiddie pool version of Christianity and life. Now, verse 8, Paul is going to get to the heart of what he's getting at here because he's already said most of this already in the letter. He's bringing up again what he's already talked about. In verse 8, he's going to shift now to the primary point. Verse 8 says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's, lowercase g. So we begin to feel the angst from Paul's writing here that the main point he wants to get out of these small things that we used to be enslaved by, these small things that he's now referring to as God's with a lowercase g. It's interesting that Paul would use such a strong word to describe the things that used to influence our lives. What he's getting at here is essentially the idea of idolatry. Now, we don't use that word a lot in our culture. We hear it. Um, it probably brings to mind a, a temple or a, a room full with shrines or, or carved images. And, and in, a, in a real sense, that's what idolatry is. But in our lives, it plays out in oftentimes intangible things like um, certain aspirations or ambitions for life can become our idols, certain relationships, career trajectories, positions, the way people think about us, the way we look in the mirror. And so all these things ultimately can become idolatry for us. Idolatry is this. It is an extreme admiration, love, or reverence for something or someone. So it played out in a good way. God is our idol. That's why God starts the Ten Commandments by saying what? You shall have no other gods before me. I used to think when I was younger, and I would read that before I truly studied what God was saying in the original language, that God was talking about a priority list. You can have important things in your life, but just make sure I'm number one. So after me can come your marriage, your children, your church, your work, whatever it is, but make sure that there's nothing else before me. But this word before is probably better translated under the, with the understanding of before my presence, in front of me. Don't bring a priority list and make sure I'm number one. Make sure I'm the only thing on the list. I'm to be your idol. I'm to be the object of your affections and your worship. And he ends that in Exodus 20 by saying what? I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for your affections. So what we're talking about today we know is near and dear to the very heart of God as he looks down at his children who he's set free when he watches us Latch onto, tether our lives to things, anything that is smaller than him. It breaks his heart and he's jealous for us. There's a beautiful illustration of the absurdity of idolatry um, that we use in our um, biblical counseling training here at the church. So if you were in that training recently, you were, uh, you were familiar with Isaiah 44. 
God uses the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44. We're going to turn there for a moment if you want to turn with me. He, she shows the, uh, through an illustration of a carpenter how absurd our idolatry truly is. And he uses the carpenter in Isaiah 44. If you're turning there and you're not sure where Isaiah is, you can find the Psalms, a big section in the middle of your Bible. Go to the right a few books, and Isaiah is um, the first and one of the largest um, prophetic writings. In Isaiah 44, um, the prophet Isaiah brings up the carpenter. He says this, the carpenter stretches a line. So we get this imagery. He's measuring. He's laying out the string line, if you will, of something that he wants to build. He stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. So we've got a carpenter here who's in architectural mode. He's designing something he wants to build. He shapes it into the figure of a man. Well, that's a strange thing. With the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. And so already we're understanding that this carpenter isn't just simply building something for practical use. He's building something here that has the sense of beauty and the sense of a, has an imagery of man to it. But then he goes on to explain what the process looks like. In verse 14, here's how it begins. He begins by he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. So even before he begins, he goes out into the forest and he picks out the tree he wants to harvest to build the thing that he's designing. He picks it out when it's young and he watches this tree grow until the perfect time to harvest, cut it down and bring it back. So it says that, he, at the end of verse 14 says, he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Verse 15, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. So he cuts it down. He takes a part of what he cuts down. He warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. So you get this practical imagery. He harvests this tree. He cuts off the branches. As he begins to shape what he's going to build here, he begins to use the branches and these discarded portions of the tree to, first of all, warm himself, but then to cook dinner. Okay? Now, still, he has in mind he's going to build this thing he designed on, on the architectural table. As he continues on, he also makes a God, lowercase g, and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Now, already we're beginning to see this very ironic picture of absurdity that a man would go through all the trouble to design this image, to go out into the forest, to watch for years as this tree grows, the perfect tree. Then at a certain point, he cuts the tree down, Harvest the tree, brings it back home, begins to use pieces of it to warm himself, right? Pieces of it to cook dinner. And oh yeah, a piece of it to create this image that he designed. And he calls the image God and he even bows down before it. Absurdity, right? I mean, truly absurdity to think that you would worship something that you created. Well, to, to, to further highlight the absurdity and the ridiculousness of idolatry... Isaiah continues, verse 17. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen fire. It's like a scene from Castaway. Tom Hanks, Aha, I have made fire. And then he goes on in verse 17. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it. And worships it and he prays to it. Now, just to further illustrate how ridiculous it is when we create our own idols, now he talks to it and he asks the idol, 
Deliver me, for you are my God. Now, if we were to watch that scene play out in a movie, we'd feel sorry for that guy, wouldn't we? Like, oh, you poor wretched soul. That tree is going to no more help you. You might as well chop the rest of it up, right, into firewood. You're going to get more use out of it. You're going to be more satisfied by using it to cook dinner than asking it to deliver you. Like, right, that's how absurd is that to ask something you have power over to have power over you? Now, Isaiah is giving us this illustration that you and, my, you and I might understand the absurdity of our idolatry which is ultimately where Paul is going here in just a moment in Galatians 4. Remember that you were once enslaved to those who by nature were not gods. You treated them like they were your gods. You gave things that ultimately don't have power over you, power over you. You bowed down to, you submitted to, you surrendered to things that were small. Now, we, we see this story unfold and we go, gosh, somebody tell that guy, right? Somebody please pull him aside and say, listen, man, it's just a cedar tree, right? You'd be better off to carve something you could use for the house, some bowls or some, you know, some dishes or something. Like, it's not going to answer you. You're talking to a block of wood. So the prophet Isaiah will go into another uh, part of what he's talking about here to explain why we find ourselves or how we find ourselves in such states that we would be so desperate to bow down to small things. Look at what Isaiah says in verse 18. When you look at the man who has a block of wood in his hand, he's calling it God and he's asking it to deliver him. Understand this, they know not. They know not. It is absurd and he doesn't even know it. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say. Because here's what we want to say to that guy. You burn half of that tree up as firewood. Don't worship the other half. But Isaiah is, is letting us know he didn't have the discernment to say that to himself. Half of it I burned in fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and I have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it into abomination? That's what we see when we're looking from the outside looking in. But he can't see it. He can't see that he's holding an abomination in his right hand. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He doesn't have the discernment to ask himself that. To realize how ridiculous it is that he's holding this idol in his hand. Verse 20. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Now we look upon that story in the carpenter and we have pity, don't we? We feel sorry for that guy. Paul is saying to us, that's who you were. When he's calling us to not turn back, he's calling us to not turn back and be that guy again. To latch on to small things, to hold in our hands blocks of wood, to give them our affections, to ask of them to satisfy us and deliver us, to, to give us purpose in life. And ultimately, in verse 8, he says, formerly when you did not know God, 
Remember the, the carpenter? He didn't know. Guess what? We didn't either. But now that we know God, look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. You see, something changes when we get to know who God is. There's a recalibration, if you will, of what is important in life, what has true value in life and meaning and substance. That's why when we come to know Christ, our life may be latched onto a million different things that we're trying to find purpose in and meaning in and value in. But when we come to know Christ, we find so much value in who he is and what he's done for us. We, we unhook all these things and we latch them onto him. And we say, all I have is Christ. That's our anthem. That's our song. And along the way, what happens? We forget. We're prone to wonder. We're prone to take our eyes off the main thing and to reset our eyes on small things and to latch on to things that don't promise what they'll deliver. We tend to try to grab once again the block of wood in our hand and find meaning for life in it. That's the absurdity of idolatry. And what Paul is getting out here is it's double absurdity to go back to that. Now that you know God, or better yet, that now he knows you, you now know the difference. There's been a recalibration. Before you knew God, you didn't understand something of infinite value, but now you know the one of infinite value. So now you can look at the things that used to be big to you and go, these things are now small. Before you knew God, they were big, right? But now that you know God and his infinite value, you can look at these things and go, these are small, small things. We now have a frame of reference by which to measure life. There's a, um, there's a couple out in uh, California, the Maynard family. Uh, the story has hit the news recently, and uh, she just, uh, the, the, the wife, Brittany, um, shortly after um, they were married, um, was diagnosed with a severe form of uh, brain cancer, very aggressive terminal form of brain cancer. And was just reading her story this last week. She's got some videos out. So far, nothing from the story that would caused me to think that she is a believer or trusts in Christ, and so I'm not putting her before you as the way that you should face suffering or death, but I noticed something about what, something her husband said over the last few months that has happened in his own heart, and so I have a quote from him. This is a, a quote from Dan Maynard as he watches his wife struggle through terminal illness. He says this, you take away all the material stuff, all the nonsense we seem to latch onto as a society and you realize that those moments are really what matter. What, what's happening in his heart? He's recalibrating. I don't even know if he knows Christ, but just the suffering alone is causing this man to step back and measure what really matters in life. What things have we tethered our life to that don't really matter? A lifestyle, a house, a neighborhood, a certain set of friends, a certain reputation, a career, being at the top of the ladder. And so this is what Paul is saying, that now that you know God, there's been a recalibration. You should know what really matters in life. Don't go back to the small things, the things you used to be slaves to. Don't go back. Psalm 115, there's a few verses from Psalm 115, um, verses 2 through 8, that illustrate, again, the absurdity of our own idolatry and how we latch onto tangible things. I love how it begins in verse 2. Why should the nations say, 
where is their God? First of all, that's a very tragic thing, right, for the nations to ever have to ask of us, where is your God? I see you gathering as a group of people. I see yourselves calling yourselves Christians, but where's your God? And then he goes on, the psalmist goes on to explain. Verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There, idols are silver and gold and the work of human hands. They have mouths, talking about the idols, but they don't speak, right? That was what was kind of ridiculous about the block of the wood. He was talking to it, thinking it was going to talk back. So even if he carved into the wood a mouth, the mouth is never going to speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but they don't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And then this verse 8 explains, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. See, ultimately, that's what happens through idolatry. We become like our idols. Now, how is this supposed to unfold and work? Remember that God created us in an image? Whose image? His. And when he's our idol, our number one, the thing that we've tethered our life to, guess what happens? We become like him. That's the power of idolatry. Staying latched to him, chasing after him, pursuing relationship with him. What happens in our lives is we, over time, slowly and surely, recalibration after recalibration, become more and more like him. But it's equally true that when we latch onto small things, we become like them as well. It's the absurdity of idolatry. So now in Christ, now that we know God, or rather that he has come to know us, we're able to see small things as small. But not only that, we're able to see God as infinitely valuable and worthy. So that when he says to us, you shall have no other gods before me, we understand that that's only possible when we have seen God as infinitely more valuable than all other things. You can't just obey, have no other gods before me. Right? We, we need to know who God is. Once we know who God is, we're able to understand he's like an infinite ocean of goodness and wisdom and love and mercy. We've been swimming in the kiddie pool. We've gotten out of the kiddie pool. Right now we're out in the ocean of who God is and, and understanding and, and the depth of, of, of a relationship that is to be had that we can't get to the bottom of. We can't cross over it. Right? We can't do anything but be wet. Understanding that we are submerged in the presence of who God is. That's what it means to have no other gods before him. To trust in him and him alone. To say, all I have is Christ. I work hard at my life. I have a job. I have a family. I have all these small things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, should tragedy strike me, all I have is him. That's what it means to have no other gods before him. Verse 9, again in Galatians 4, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You feel Paul's brokenness? I believe Paul is reflecting the brokenness of our God, too. I wrote down a list just so we don't get caught up in this idea that idolatry is only good versus evil. Good things can become our idols. 
right? Things that God intended to, to, in a small way, right? Add purpose to who we are. The very things that God gave us as good gifts can become our idols. Here's a list of them. Modern day blocks of wood, if you will. Relationships. You're telling me not to love my spouse? No, I'm telling you to love your spouse because you love Christ more. If you're married, the greatest gift you could give to your spouse is to love Jesus more than you love him or her. To have no other gods before him, you will love him or her better. If we're not careful, even our own marriages can become idols, these blocks of wood that we look to for satisfaction, we look to to rescue us. And they don't deliver, do they? Oftentimes it's the opposite. They make life harder, right? The very thing that we've latched onto thinking it's going to give us purpose or meaning ends up setting us up in a position where we found less meaning and purpose. And we wonder, how in the world did I get here? Married to you. What is going on in my life? Children. Children can become blocks of wood. Very practical ways. Who, who leads your family? Well, I do. Okay. Just take some inventory to make sure. Who guides the schedule of your family for the week? I really need to be doing such and such and such and such, and we need to be doing such and such and such and such and such, but we can't. Why? Because we've got all these practices and all these rehearsals and all these things. Good things, right? But if we're not careful, these good things will become the gods of our family time. Practice saying no, even when you don't have to. Making sure that we keep our hearts tethered to the main thing and we teach our children to do so as well. Physical health. I'm a strong advocate of physical health. It's incredibly important to steward well what God's given you. But even our physical health can become an idol, a block of wood. How do we know if our, if our physical health has become a block of wood? What would happen to you if it were taken away tomorrow? Good friend, shortly out of high school, very athletic football player. Once spin around in the ice on his truck on the interstate, and he's been paralyzed ever since. Completely recalibrated life for him, whether he liked it or not. I love talking with Brady. Brady loves the Lord deeply. He knows that God has a purpose for him. But I think he would say to you, I didn't know that before that instance. What would happen if your physical health was taken away tomorrow? Terminal illness, cancer, immobility, Good things, right? We're to steward well this temple God has given us. Pay attention to what we eat, exercise. How do we know that, one of, that our health has become a block of wood? It's because if it were taken away, you'd be devastated. Now you're beginning to trust in it. Physical appearances. This is huge for our culture right now, ladies. My heart breaks for these young girls of the next generation as they listen to this lie from our cultural media voice telling them that to have value in our society and culture, not only do you need to look a certain way, you need to advertise it a certain way. Those of you who have little girls, my heart breaks for you. I'm, I'm doing my best to teach my boys not to see your daughters that way as objects, but our culture and society is full on teaching your little girls to become objects. Appearances can become a block of wood in our right hand. And we look to them for satisfaction. We look to them for joy. Listen, read the diary 
or the testimonies of those who've reached the top in modeling or beauty careers and hear how void and vain those poor young ladies are who thought that they were going to find satisfaction in capturing everybody's attention. Physical appearances can easily become a block of wood. Here's one. Belonging to the right church can even become that. You begin to find your identity in the church you belong to. It can happen here. It can happen anywhere. It can become your idol, your block of wood, the thing you look to for satisfaction, the foundation of who you are, right? This is who I am. I go to this church. You see how good things can very easily become blocks of wood in our hand. Food, huge in our culture and society. Alcohol, intimacy, just keep going down the list. Even the good things in life can become idols. That's why God said, that's why he didn't say, just make sure I'm number one on the priority list. He didn't say that. What did he say? Have no other gods before me. Don't bring any of them into my presence. So what's the difference between appreciating things that God gives you that are good and then making them idols? Here's some of the differences. When you expect them to deliver you from your troubles, now it's become an idol. There's, there's a difference. Are children a good thing? Yeah, I love my boys. How do I make sure that they don't become an idol? Right? I'm going to make sure that I'm not looking for my satisfaction in life and what they do or don't do. I'm learning really quickly not to do that. Right, parents? But even in my spouse, even in my most important relationships, are these good things to be celebrated? Absolutely. What transfers them, though, to idols when we begin to look to them to deliver us from our troubles? or to find satisfaction when you start talking to them in a way that you're expecting them to talk back when these things start to take control of your life. I, I, honestly, I have no idea where you're at um, right now in your spiritual journey with the Lord, but I can almost guarantee every one of us right now is struggling with a small thing on some level whether it's something I've listed here or not, there is a small thing competing for God's place in your heart. And I believe it breaks the heart of God when he sees our lives controlled by small things. If you're taking notes, God sent his son to open up my eyes to see the truth about the things that were controlling my life. Controlling is a key word there. God sent his son, as Paul mentions here, to open my eyes to see the truth about the things that were controlling my life in order to keep me from turning back to small things. Before I knew Christ, I wasn't able to see him, but now I am. I'm able to. I'm able to see when I've latched onto something other than him. Uh, there's an illustration that I've used before here on Sunday mornings. I'll use it if you haven't heard it. Um, when our oldest son, Hudson, was about two years old, I had brought him to the office to work with me, and I had a meeting in my office, and so I had put him in the next office over with some things to color and some toys to play with, and I always tell him, unless the building's on fire or you're on fire, just wait till I'm done meeting and I'll be available. It's just my way of saying, make sure it's important before you come barging in. And, and so um, he was taking this very little, very seriously, and so um, I'm, I'm talking with whoever I was meeting with, and, uh, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, um, I see a little hand under the door. I have a door behind me, and, and I'm like, 
It's Hudson's like a little raccoon reaching through there trying to grab at something. And, and just, just right after I saw it, he shrieks out, just, just crying like he was on fire. And, uh, and so I hear it, and I push back, and I go, what is going on? What is going on? What happened is one of his toys, I think it was one of his cars, had rolled underneath the door. And there's enough room under the door for him to get his little hand and wrist under there and grab a hold of the car. But then what happens? Yeah, he's stuck. And the harder he pulls, right, the more stuck he feels that he is. And it becomes painful, and he begins to rip at his skin trying to get his hand back under the door. And what's the solution? as his loving father, to kneel down and patiently speak to him through the door. I can't open the door. Take all the skin off his knuckles, right? To patiently speak to him through the door as a loving father. My heart was breaking for him. I saw the desperation of his situation, but I knew the only solution was to let go of the small thing. Hudson, let go of Do you trust daddy? Yes. Then let go of the car. And he finally did. Opened the door, hugged his neck, loved on him, and then what I do? I gave him his car. See, I think that illustration helps us understand the ridiculousness of when we take hold of small things and then we find ourselves in painful situations and God, get me out of this. And God says to us, let go of the small thing. Quit trying to find your joy and satisfaction and your deliverance in this small thing. It's going to end in pain every time. The solution is to let go. Do you trust your father? Do you trust me as your Abba Father? Do you truly believe you're my son and my daughter? Trust me. Let go of the small things. If you're taking notes, one last statement here. Knowing God personally gives me a scale to weigh the purpose and value of things in order for me to let go of the small things and hold on to the God things, which is ultimately God himself. Knowing God personally Okay, I can't just know about God. That doesn't change the affections of my heart. Right? I can't just read the Bible in an arbitrary sense as a book of information and be any, 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 any less or any more different. The difference comes as I get to know God personally, the value of who he is in my life grows exponentially. And just when I think I've crossed over to the other side of the ocean of who he is, I realize it was a mirage and I'm just barely even getting wet. Knowing God personally is what recalibrates our life over and over again that we can continue the process of letting go of small things. And when we're tempted to grab, God reminds us as a loving father, don't grab that. Don't, don't grab a hold of it. Hold it in your hand loosely. Whether it's a relationship, a child, maybe a job he's called you to do. Hold these things loosely. Don't find your strength and identity in these things. so that we can take hold of the things of God. We're going to spend some time reflecting and, and recalibrating, if you will, this morning as we get ready to take communion. Um, if you're a guest or visitor with us, first Sunday of the month we take communion together as a church family. We invite you to do so with us this morning. Just a couple of things, though, um, by way of reminder. Um, it's our um, joy and responsibility to take communion, one, because Christ has commissioned us to do so. But two, every time we take communion, we remember. We remember the, the valiant, love-drenched sacrifice of our Savior to set us free from our slavery to small things and to adopt us into God's family. We remember that thing that we're prone to forget. But communion is also a time of recalibration. 
a time of assessment, of thinking about what things have I recently latched onto that I don't need to latch onto? What things are still lingering from my past that I've yet to permanently let go of? And so every time we take communion, we remember this beautiful, victorious sacrifice of Christ, and we are able to recalibrate, to take inventory on our lives. What small things am I, do I have in my life? Am I holding my right hand? What blocks of wood do I have that I need to set down that I might take hold of Christ? And so we're going to have a time of reflection um, this morning. I'm going to ask uh, Jason Lewis to come up and, and uh, just get our hearts prepared. And, uh, and I'm going to ask a couple of questions of reflection. But even before I do that, um, I don't want to assume anything about any person here today. I don't know all of you personally. And so I don't know where you stand with God. When we read this statement that says, now that you've come to know God, or rather that he's come to know you, I wonder if everybody in the room has truly come to that point in their life, that you know God personally. So what does it mean to know God personally? It means first and foremost this, that you believe. That you believe that God has sent his son as an expression of his love to rescue you from the small things in life and to set you free from sin the law, and ultimately anything smaller than him. And he's inviting you into a love relationship that by faith you might come to know him and walk with him. And as you do that, guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna begin to look like him. We don't, we don't get there right away. But day by day, the Lord wants to walk with you in a relationship through moments of struggle and suffering, through moments of victory. He wants to be your main thing. And today he's inviting you into that relationship that by faith you would come to him. Say, God, I realize today that this is who I am. I made a mess of my life. I'm, I'm more than prone to, to, to latch on to small things. Like that's all I latch on to. And today I want to let all those things down and take hold of Christ. In your own words, in your own heart, in your own way, if you decide to approach God today, I want you to know he's, gonna meet, he's promised to meet you where you're at today. And if you cry out to him and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins, save me, I want to have a relationship with you, guess what's going to happen? It's, he's going to save you, he's going to forgive you of your sins, and he is going to walk with you. And that's his promise, not mine. And so today, before we even get to communion, I want you to know that promise is available. And, and if you decide today to trust Christ for the first time, you can do that where you're seated. Our prayer partners will be at the front. They'll have lanyards on. We'll have a couple at the back. They'd be more than happy to talk or pray with you. Should you make that decision today, we want to invite you to take communion today for the first time as a Christian. Okay? And so we're going to move into a time of communion after I ask a few questions of reflection. And here's the way we do it at Solid Rock. We want, we want you to take as much time as you need to, to be prepared. And so um, as we sing these last two songs, whenever your heart is ready, we want you to feel free to stand and come either to the front or we have one station at the back. You can come by yourself. You can come with uh, your family or a loved one or a friend um, and, and pick up the elements of bread and juice. You can take them back to your seats. Take them as a family together. You can kneel here and take those elements as well. You could go back to one of our prayer counseling rooms. They'll be open as well uh, just to have some intimate time with the Lord as you take communion. But we want you to be led by God's Spirit to do so. As we get ready to take communion. Let's spend some time in reflection and maybe even some recalibration this morning. So how do you know what the small things are in your life? First of all, ask this question, from what sources do I draw value? 
What are the things that I find value in? What things mean the most to me? You could ask yourself this question. From what sources do I draw purpose for my life? What are the things in my life that I look to to find purpose? When I'm struggling to believe that I have purpose or meaning in this life, what are the things I I turn to to remind myself of my purpose? You might ask this question of yourself. What are the things that I'm struggling with for control? Many of us here today are fighting this battle, this struggle of control, and you realize today it's with a small thing, yet it seems to have a big hold on your life. It may be a full-out addiction, maybe something that's about to become that. What is it today that controls your life that is smaller than God? And so how do we recalibrate? First of all, we have to ask ourselves, how well do I know God? That's what Paul points to. I mean, that's the answer. How well do you know God? Are you pursuing this love relationship with him? Are you opening up his word to do more than just read information? Are you opening it up to find God, to hear from God, to see his character illustrated time and time again, to be reminded of of how much he loves you? Are you opening his word to find him? Are you spending time in prayer with God, talking to a God who talks back, speaking and listening? I'm gonna pray for us today, for you, and uh, and hopefully we can move into a time of reflection now before we take communion. And I'm just gonna encourage you all, wherever you are in your relationship with the Lord, that we might respond fully to God before we take communion this morning. Let's, Let's pray together. Father, today we thank you for delivering us from small things. And today we admit together, God, how absurd and ridiculous it is that we so quickly return to these small things in life. God, this morning for each of us, I pray that you would recalibrate our hearts, that you would reveal to us the things in our life that are controlling us, the things in our life that, are, that we're looking to to find purpose and value, the things in our life that have become idols to us. God, reveal to us where we've latched on to anything smaller than you. God, give us the courage to let go of those things today. Reset our hearts this morning to see you as a God of infinite value and worth the one true God, the only one worthy to be an idol in our lives. God, thank you for being jealous for us. May we respond to that this morning by coming to you.